If you have your Bibles, if you would, open them to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 31 this morning. 20 through 31. And when you get to Genesis 1 verse 20, if you are able, would you please stand in honor of God's word? Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, and hear the word of God for the people of God this Lord's day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening And there was morning, the sixth day. Now may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Good news this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. I'm so grateful for Brother Steve and Donna Gaines. They are such gracious and generous friends partners in ministry. A few years ago, I was e- either at a conference or someone was sharing with me uh, that one of the things that they did was that, that they listened to a couple of really great communicators every week, people who preach the gospel as, a, as an encouragement to them that they weren't always just listening to their own voice, but that they were listening to other voices. And so I got in the practice of, of listening to Brother Steve every week over these last few years, and I'm so blessed, as I know you are, by his teaching and preaching. And you may recall that Brother Steve preached a sermon here at Bellevue in April called Hearing and Doing God's Word. In fact, it was on April 12th this year, based on James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, a powerful word. And it really got me to thinking about the commandments of God 
and what it is that God has commanded us to do in his word and ensuring that I was actually doing what God had commanded, which, of course, takes us back to in the beginning. If we want to be hearers and doers of God's word, then we should begin with the beginning, right? And what did he say to us to do in the beginning? I want to encourage you and myself that when we read something familiar like the creation story, that that we adopt the attitude of the psalmist as we read it. What I mean by that is that the the psalmist, as as the psalmist thinks about creation, they they think about God as the creator. The, The psalmist acknowledges God that way, and we should do that as well. The, the psalmist, just like, like us, knows that there are seven days and knows that, that, that these things happen, these things are created, but the psalmist, the, they don't meditate on how did this happen. They meditate on the greatness of God. They instead focus on the central message of the creation account, and the central message of the creation account is all that exists is the work of God. All that exists is the work of God. Everything around us has been carefully and thoughtfully designed. And creation, in many ways, is a mirror. And and it reflects our thoughts and our worship back to the one whose image creation enables us to see. Now, when I talk about this in the psalmist, if you'll flip over to Psalm 8, you'll see this. Just flip over in your Bibles just for a moment into to Psalm 8 so that you can see how this plays out. Listen to how the psalmist talks about creation. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is all your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You hear it, right? The the psalmist is just proclaiming how great God is. And we should be doing the same things. Now, now this is not to say that we shouldn't be interested in science or that we aren't interested in science and the, the how of it. And also, I want you to, to remember, I need to give you this reminder this morning, that there is no conflict between science rightly understood and God's Word. None. There is conflict between science wrongly understood and God's Word. Let me give you just one example. This last week, the American Medical Association said that we should stop listing male and female as genders on birth certificates. That is science wrongly understood, and it conflicts with God's Word. But science rightly understood 
will always agree with God's word. And so sometimes people will say, this is not a book of science. I could not disagree more. It is a book of everything. But the reality is, the author of Genesis is really trying to do something more theological than scientific. The, the author is trying to help us understand who God is. The, the, the author is trying to help us understand the identity and the destiny of human beings who are created in the image of God. So, so the, the, the point of the Genesis creation account is not that you and I would understand supernovas or that you and I would understand cell and molecular biology. The point of the creation account is that we could say, Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So that we might say, God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You've encountered this before, but just as a refresher, this is what happened on the, the six days of creation. Day one, light. Day two, sky. Day three, land and sea and plants. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, fish and birds. Day six, animals and men. And of course, you know that day seven is the Sabbath day, the day of rest. And we're going to focus today on day six. I want us to focus our attention there, our minds, affection, our hearts, our, our minds, attention, our hearts, affection there. But it's important to see that each day God has produced incredible things. Do you see that? Like each day, we could never, in fact, sort of fully appreciate what God has done in that. We never sufficiently admire God as the creator. Here's, here's, how, here's how you know that. You know that because you are going to never, ever tire of a beautiful West Tennessee sunset. You are never going to say, eh, that was pretty good. You're going to just stand in awe and say, wow. That is beautiful, and you're going to praise God for it. But, but you notice that, that you don't read of any creation of a living creature until the fifth day. The reason is that the, the work of, of creation proceeds gradually along a pattern from one thing to another. It rises and advances until the crowning work of creation on the sixth day. And that final crowning work of creation is male and female, man and woman. And I want you to hear me on this. I believe that God is teaching you and me, even in this, that he is teaching us to press on towards perfection right? And that we should endeavor that our last works might be our greatest works. So don't ever give up. Don't ever tire. Keep pressing on, believing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That fifth day in your Bibles, verses 20 through 23, this recorded the fifth day. The signs uh, of life, of animal life, appear first in the waters and then in the air, the creation of marine animals begins first and then the birds of the air. And it's the same as on the third day. On the third day, God created the plants and the vegetations. And, and he commands that the, the life to be according to its kind. And the Bible says that's from great to small. 
Now, I don't know if I have any biology teachers in here, but, but you and I all took biology classes, life science classes along the way somewhere, and we studied this, and this is how it went, right? There was kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. You remember that? I had to look it up. It's okay. <laughs> kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. By the way, that's seven, the number of perfection or completion. It's all there in Genesis, just as it is in your biology textbook. On the sixth day, a farther advance was made by the creation of land animals and, and all of these various kinds of, of land animals, right? He, he made, God made them of diverse shapes and sizes and natures and, and customs. Think about this. Just, just think about this. Some are tame, such that they can live around your house, and some are wild. Some eat grass and hay, and others want to eat you. Some are harmless, others are dangerous. Some are bold, others are timid. Some are for man's service, but not our sustenance. Like a horse. A horse is for man's service, but not for our sustenance. Don't eat a horse. Others are for our sustenance, but not our service, like a deer. A deer is for our sustenance, but are not, not our service. And others are for both our sustenance and our service. Praise God for cows. And some are for neither. Think about it. A giraffe is for neither. It's just for our enjoyment. You go to the Memphis Zoo, you all want to go see the giraffes, admit it. In all of this, in all of this, do you, do you get this? I hope you can grasp this. All of this is showing the wisdom of the Creator. All of this is showing the, the incredible power of the Creator, His goodness to us in creation. Now, now modern science, modern science has figured out that there's a strong continuity between animals and humans. Have you heard this? They say there's a strong continuity between animals and humans. All of us as Christians who know the Bible say, duh, they're all created from the earth. So of course there's a strong continuity, right? We're not surprised by that. It, the Genesis account, Genesis account shows that. When, when God created human beings, notice that he didn't drop them from the sky, did he? He created them from the earth, from the ground, and breathed the breath of life into us. And yet, and yet Scripture, even though there is that continuity, Scripture very clearly is trying to tell us that something special happened at the end of the sixth day. Something very special happened at the end of the sixth day. The change of the language in the text Cues this for us. For example, in verse 20, you see, let the waters swarm. God speaks and it just happens. In verse 24, you see, let the earth bring forth and it just happens. God speaks and it happens. But notice in verse 26, 
God does something different. He says, let us make. In this, in this we, we see, even in this change of language, you see that there's a new stage of creation. There's something special happening. It's this high point, and God is leaning in, in this moment, to actually form us, male and female, distinct from what has gone before. Human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. We bear the imago Dei. And this makes us truly unique among God's creation, different than everything else. The Bible indicates that the image of God belongs equally and immediately to all humans. No one has more of the image of God No one has less of the image of God. Somebody say amen. The Bible clearly presents that this image of God is fundamentally different, that this fundamentally distinguishes humanity from the rest of earth's living creature. And the basic point is straightforward enough. Humanity is endowed by God with a special dignity. And therefore, man is to have dominion over, not evolve from, the creeping things. Man is God's representative, clothed with his authority as a visible ruler of the world. As just one tiny example of that, praise God for dominion of man, right? Because you and I can sit in a very comfortable 70-degree auditorium when it's 100 degrees outside. Anybody else thankful for dominion? <laughs> now, both the Bible and science agree that the, that the crowning work of creation is, is man. People disagree on how we got here, but we all agree on the measure of the outcome. Man was made last of all the creatures so that there'd be no confusion that you or I would fall into that we had any part in creation. See how smart God is? It was all done before we showed up, y'all. Which, just if you've forgotten, we are not God. We bear his image, yes, but we are not him. And, by the way, if we ever get confused about that, He's going to ask you, just like he asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, and you and I will be just like Job. Never mind. You see, there's finitely in man, in you, an element which responds to that which is in God infinitely. This this part of your nature never dies. It never ends. It's eternal. You have to recognize this. Spiritually, you will live eternally either in God's presence or apart from him. And as a free moral person, God designed us as free moral people, you must decide. Will you spend eternity with God or will you spend eternity apart from God? You get to decide. Well, See, this is why I can't do this, because that was a 20-minute introduction to the message. 
Well, here we are on the sixth day. The whole point of this is we're thinking about what did God command, right? What did God command? So let's get to that. We're here on the sixth day. God created man and woman, his special creation. And the first thing God says to man, did you see it there? The first thing that God says, it's in verse 28 in case you missed it, is be fruitful and multiply. Let's say that out loud. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, this is not the only time that humans are instructed to be fruitful and multiply. After the flood, in Genesis 9-1, it's recorded, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When Abraham is 99 years old, God makes a covenant with him and tells him that he will multiply him into a multitude of nations. This is recorded in Genesis 17-4, where, it says, where God says to Abraham, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God, by the way, reminds and reinforces this to Abraham such that, that his descendants will be as multitudinous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. In Genesis twenty-two seventeen, God says to Abraham, I, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. And in Genesis 35, 11, God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And in Jeremiah 29, the people of God have been taken captive by the Babylonians. You remember this, right? And even in the Babylonian captivity, God's word through the prophet Jeremiah is the same. It was this. It's Jeremiah 29.6. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. You see, the same pattern is the same. The same pattern happens everywhere in God's word. This idea of be fruitful and multiply is repeated over and over again. Now listen, the truth is that you and I probably a lot today feel like we're exiles in Babylon. Anybody else feel like that? The culture's so different. The priorities of our nation seem so different than, than ours. And there are so many other gods that people are bowing down, bowing down to. Still, even in exile, God's command was the same to his people. Be fruitful and multiply. Go, have children, don't decrease in number. Now, the problem with that is that we, we exchange that truth from God for a lie. Let's think about this. In America, we're more committed to our pets than our children. Now, let me say quickly, I'm not against pets. And specifically, I'm not against your pets. The pet market has been steadily increasing in America since the 1980s. In 1994, Americans spent $17 billion on their pets. By 2018, that number had risen to $70 billion in one year. Evidence suggests that, that pets are increasingly being thought of as family members. In 1998, the average dog-owning American household spent $383 on medical care for their dogs. By 2006, that figure had doubled to $672. Last year, that figure had doubled again 
an average family spends $1,380 per year on health care for their dog. Between 1947 and 1985, fewer than half of Americans reported that they owned a pet. Today, American pets outnumber children four to one. When I ask young married couples about having children, they'll say things like, we have a dog. That's not the answer I'm looking for. Or, or sometimes our friends, they'll, they'll say, well, we don't have any grandkids, but we have a grand dog. Interesting. Now let me say again, I'm not against pets. And hear me, I'm not against your pets. Okay? Don't send letters to Steve. However, I do want us to focus on the things of God and not just copy what the world is doing. You know, auto insurance companies offer policies for pets traveling in cars. Wealthy dog owners successfully lobbied for changes in estate laws allowing pets to legally receive an inheritance and trust funds. You know how I know that? When I came to Union, they said, well, we have this trust, but it's in the name of a cat, and so we don't get it until the cat dies. <laughs> I said, how old is the cat? <laughs> Has anyone seen the cat? Could I check up on the cat? <laughs> Just kidding. We do have some messed up priorities, though, don't we? Susie and I were traveling a, a few months ago going through Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, and no joke, we saw a woman pushing her dog in a baby stroller. Now, let me say just one more time, I'm not against pets. <laughs> And I'm not against your pets, I promise. I love your pets. <laughs> In order for a country to maintain its population, it has to have a fertility rate of 2.1. In order to maintain population, you've got to have a fertility rate of 2.1. Basically, every woman, on average, has two children. You understand that intuitively, that makes sense, right, to, to maintain a population. If the rate is higher than 2.1, the country's population grows. If the rate is under that, the population shrinks. The current fertility rate in the United States of America is 1.71. While that's slightly below 2.1, it's exceptionally high for first world countries. Japan and Italy are around 1.4. How did we get here? We exchanged the truth of God and the command of God for human wisdom. It started in 1968 by a book called The Population Bomb by Pearl, Paul Ehrlich. And even if you haven't read this book, you and I have been thoroughly and completely influenced because his thesis, even though it was absolutely wrong, has been the dominant message concerning population for the last 50 years. In fact, you will still hear people talking about the overpopulation of the planet. In fact, Ehrlich claimed within a few years that 
that overpopulation was going to ravage the planet. If you think I'm exaggerating, here's how he begins the book. The battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, the world will undergo famines. Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. At this late date, nothing can prevent a substantial increase in the world death rate. Johnny Carson had him on The Tonight Show several times, and one night he, in, he devoted the entire show to Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb. And that's how human wisdom replaces the truth of God and we get into the situation that we're in. In 1979, the world's fertility rate was 6.0. Today, it's 2.4, just barely above replacement rate. Hear me on this. Overpopulation is not the problem. Consider Poland. What we know is the Polish fertility rate is 1.32, and that for the last few years, Poland's population has been hovering around 38 million. If Poland's fertility rate stays at 1.32, their population will plummet from 38 million to 16.4 million by the end of this century. Consider China. Beginning in 1970, the Chinese government began a course of what they called late, long, and few, instructing women to wait until later in life to have children, to put longer periods of time between births, and to have fewer children overall. And it worked. In a decade, the fertility rate in China dropped from 5.5 to 2.7. But you and I know that wasn't enough for the Chinese Communist Party, and so in 1979, they implemented what is known as the one-child policy. You've heard of it? By their own count, China's government says that they have reduced their population by over 400 million people since the 1970s. Now, in addition to all of the other problems that China's one-child policy has wrought, it has created a dangerous sex imbalance in China. The reality is that, that generally, 105 boys are born for every 100 girls. I don't exactly know why that is, but that's just the way it is. 105 boys for every 100 girls, okay? Because of sex-selective abortion in China, the three most dangerous words spoken in China are, it's a girl. Families aborted their girls much more frequently than they aborted their boys. And what has happened is that now in China, there are 123 boys born for every 100 girls. And how this plays out writ large is that there are tens of millions of Chinese men who have absolutely no prospects of marrying because there aren't any Chinese women. Now think about just the implications of that one thing on things like sex trafficking and pornography it's awful. 
Even the Chinese Communist Party, they realized the terrible outcomes of their policy, and they said it was still wonderful, but they abolished it. That's how wonderful it was for them. And they said you could have two children with permission, and now they say you can have as many children as you want, and they're trying to encourage young couples to have children because they know that their population is about to start declining. At the end of the baby boom in the United States, that was 1960, the fertility rate in our own country was 3.7. In 1980, it was 1.8, a 50% decline in a single generation, all thanks to our trading the truth of God's word and his command, be fruitful and multiply, to the human wisdom of Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb. Now, that's kind of heavy, but I want you to know this. Demography is not destiny. Here's the good news. We can return to God's Word. Let me say that again. We can return to God's Word. Now, wait a minute, you say. I heard, I heard that the census just released that there was an increase of over 23 million Americans between 2010 and 2020. How can that be if we're below replacement rate like you say? Let me explain it. It's called demographic momentum. You see, you don't see the effects of the fertility decrease until the last above replacement rate generation dies. Does that make sense? Demographic momentum. So what that means for us in the United States of America is that when people my age start dying, people who, come, who came of age in the 1960s, who were born in the 60s, when, when we start to die, you'll start to see the population declining. Now, I know some of us won't be here to see that, but you younger folks... Just remember back to the day in 2021 when you heard that in Bellevue Baptist Church. It's coming. In 2008, the decline began in Japan. All of our eyes have been focused on Japan this last week, and so I just want you to know what's happening in Japan. And it started in Japan in 2008, and between 2008 and 2011, Japan lost one million people. What that means is that more people died than were born. And when that happens, when that starts to happen, your population starts to decline. And between 2011 and 2021, 3.5 million more people are gone from Japan. In Japan today, in Japan, there is a government department that all they do is figure out what to do with all the buildings they don't need anymore. 4.5 million people take up a lot of space and a lot of housing. And when you don't have them, you've got to figure out what to do with all those buildings. Since 1989, Latvia has lost 13% of its population. Germany is shedding 100,000 people a year. In Russia, matters are considerably worse. In 1995, Russia had 146.9 million people. Today, Russia has 142 million people. And they're dropping, their population is dropping by 200,000 people per year. Why? Abortion is rampant in Russia. In Russia, there are 13 abortions for every 10 live births. Yes. Consider that for just a minute. Russians are so hopeless about the future that they have 30% more abortions than live births. Now, brothers and sisters, that may be the most ghastly statistic ever spoken in the world. 
And when you add alcoholism and suicide in Russia, we realize that Russia is literally a society that is killing itself. Some of you read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. And he said in The Wealth of Nations, the most decisive mark of prosperity of any country is the increase of the number of inhabitants. Mark Stein put it another way. He says, there is no precedent in human history for economic growth on declining human capital. It just doesn't happen. You cannot have increasing economic prosperity and fewer and fewer people. Take Social Security just as an example. This is, again, this is bringing this home to us. The, the problem is that while there are more workers paying into Social Security, the number of retirees has risen faster than the number of workers. And so in, 19, in 1940, when it started, there were 35.4 million workers supporting 220,000 retirees. So that meant there were 160 workers supporting every retiree. Sign me up. Right? That's awesome. By 1950, the ratio was 16.5 workers for every retiree. By 1965, it fell to four workers for every retiree. And now, it's about 2.5 workers who are paying the retiree benefits. So what happens? The government has to tax you more and me more. Social Security started, it was 1% of your income up to a maximum of $3,000. Today, it's 6.2% of your income up to a maximum of $142,800. All because we've traded the truth of God for a lie. And I mentioned it briefly when I gave you information about Russia, but I've got to raise the tragedy of abortion in our own country. I want to be clear. Nothing I have done, nothing any of you have done, nothing anyone has done, nothing, including abortion, is beyond God's redemption. There is healing, there is hope through the power of Christ. Still, abortion is the biggest scourge on our country today. Abortion is different than other issues because of its clarity. You know, we can talk about how to fix Social Security and we can talk about how to fight poverty or set appropriate levels of federal spending or other matters, and we can easily disagree and we can even respectfully disagree, but it, it's really a stretch to be able to respect an abortionist who kills a baby who in just a few weeks will look like those in the nursery here at Bellevue. There's a clarity about this issue that we can't miss. And I know people will, will accuse us and say to us, you guys are always talking about abortion. Yes, because they cannot speak up for themselves. We must speak up for them. Randy Alcorn says, we shake our heads in disgust at the German church's tolerance of one holocaust while ignoring our own tolerance of another. Since Roe v. Wade, more than 62 million babies have been aborted in America. And the U.S., our country, is one of only four. We join China, North Korea, not company we want to be in, and Canada in allowing abortion at any point before birth. You and I must pray 
that this case before the Supreme Court this next term will overturn Roe v. Wade. And meanwhile, meanwhile, chimpanzee personhood is the next battle for animal rights activists. Seriously, the, the Non-Human Rights Project has filed three lawsuits claiming the unlawful imprisonment of chimpanzees. I wish I were making this up. These activists say that chimpanzees' intelligence and self-awareness imbues them with personhood. And yet those babies in utero don't. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. I'm getting a lot of heavy statistics. Don't lose hope. We, of all people, should have hope. Say, I have hope if you have hope. Okay, good. We shouldn't lose hope. The good news... The good news is the people who have babies are going to inherit the world. As Christians, we ought to have strong and large families. And a word to, to couples who are here today who are trying, who are saying, Dub, we are trying to be fruitful and multiply. It's just not happening. I pray for you. I pray that God's grace would be upon you and that he would bless you with children. Don't give up hope. Keep pursuing Him. Keep trying. As Christians, we ought to follow God's, world, God's Word. You know, the world has a different view. The world says that pleasure is the highest value. In a world where pleasure is the highest value, children are never going to be an option. In fact, that's why I wasn't surprised a couple of weeks ago to hear that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have been named environmental role models for deciding to have no more than two children to reduce their impact on the planet. Population Matters, a UK-based charity that campaigns for a sustainable human population, said it chose the couple to receive the award for their enlightened decision. I don't want you to be enlightened that way. I want you to be enlightened this way. We're in the kingdom of God. Pleasure is not our highest value. What our highest value is agape, self-sacrificing love. And when you have children, you know self-sacrificing love. Amen? So what can you do? Now, I know some of you are like, is he trying to tell us to have kids? I don't want you to listen to that, but I want you to listen to the Lord. If the Lord is saying, have another child, have another child, okay? People are here who are my age, maybe even older, and you say, well, what can I do? I'm already past that point. It can be as simple, here's the application, it can be as simple as praying for a pregnant woman who is sitting on the pew with you or a pregnant woman that you see as you're walking in the store, or a pregnant woman as you go about your day, stop, pray for them. Pray for the life that's in that womb. Pray that they would flourish. Pray that, pray that they would come to a, a knowledge of God and a salvation through Jesus Christ. Simple things. We can pray. We can also do things like this. You can drop off a pack of diapers at, at Life Choices here in Memphis. You've got an incredible resource here. And you can care for them. You can be fruitful and multiply by taking a package of diapers to Life Choices and say, bless the, use these to bless someone else, okay? Just do something like that. You know what else you can do? You can stop making jokes about large families. Don't do it. Stop it. I repent of this myself. I used to do it. Don't do it. You know, people think they're cute. They say, well, I wonder if they know how that happens. I guarantee you if they have six kids, they know how it happens. Celebrate large families. Encourage large families, right? 
Here's something else you can do. You can support a biblical view of sexuality. All of us can do that. That's in, in obedience with be fruitful and multiply. You know what a biblical view of se- sexuality is? It's simple. It's chastity and singleness, fidelity in marriage. It's just that simple. You don't need a whole lecture about that. It's just simple. Chastity and singleness, fidelity in marriage. That's the biblical sexual ethic. You can, you can in, encourage families, older couples like us, invite a younger couple over for dinner. Yeah, you might have to pick up some of the breakable stuff and move it higher so the kids don't grab it, but who cares? That's a ministry. Or you can say, hey, we'd like to come over and babysit for your kids so you guys can have a date night. That would bless a young family, I guarantee you. Some young families say amen. You, you got to support, and you do, and I, I praise you for this strong children's and families programs. I praise God for Bellevue. You can see it, these, these playgrounds and these opportunities for the children. Yes, your ministry dollars, your tithes and offerings help support that. And, and I want you to, to maybe even think, Lord, are you calling me to, to do what Jason did and go to that Connect Central and say, I'll help with the next gen and and children's ministry, they need people to step in and be Sunday school teachers and and help with the ministry. That's a way that you and I can be fruitful and multiply by supporting the ministry of the church to children. You know what you can do? You can go next time you're at Kroger or whatever your favorite grocery store is. At the checkout counter, they have these gift cards. and, And whatever you're able to do, just fill it up with whatever you're able to do. Maybe it's 20 bucks. Maybe it's 100 bucks. Whatever you can do, just fill it up. And next time you're at church and you see a young family, just say, here, bless you, and give them a Kroger gift card. You'll be shocked at how you encourage people. Listen, be fruitful and multiply has lots of applications, including things like that. Pray for families you know. Pray for them. They don't have to ask you to pray for them. Just pray for them. And, and you're like, Dr. Dove, I don't know any families at Bellevue. Well, just call the church office. Ask for Jason. He'll give you a name of a family to pray for. Pray for families. And and listen, you and I, we have got to stand up and speak up for the unborn because they can't speak for themselves. And we've got to constantly remind people that it is a child and not a choice. You can clap for that. You know, there are lots of good reasons to have a baby But the best reason is God wants married couples to. He said it. It was the first thing that he said, be fruitful and multiply. For all of us, no matter what stage of life we're in, we ought to obey God and his word. At the end of the sixth day, it's all together and God says, it's not just good, it's very good. And the creation is a revelation of God. Creation reveals God's omnipotence, a word we sang, his all-powerful being. He said, let there be, and it was so. He said, let the waters swarm, and instantly it was so. He said, let the earth bring forth, and it was so. That shows God's power, his omnipotence. Creation also reveals his wisdom, it reveals his wisdom. Think about how orderly our creation is, the means and the ends, the, the grades of nature, the image of God, all of it reveals his wisdom. It also reveals his goodness. Creation reveals God's goodness. 
the living beings, their movement, the nourishment, how it all works together. And creation ultimately reveals his love, his love. In particular, it reveals his special relationship with man. And we see that fulfillment of that special relationship with man in Jesus Christ. Because everything in creation finds its source, its goal, and its meaning in Jesus Christ, in whom the whole of creation will one day achieve redemption and renewal. All things at the end will be united in him, things in heaven and on earth. And so you and I, until that point, let's trust Jesus. Let's trust God's word. Let's not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well and be fruitful and multiply.